Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, so we'll be in Numbers 27 tonight. That's where we're going to pick up, right where we left off. Um, 27 is going to be a transition chapter in Numbers. We're hinging to the last section of Numbers. We're kind of in the last section of Numbers. And, we're, and I want to spend a little more time on this chapter. And next week we're going to do both chapters because next week the next two chapters are like a review of the book of Leviticus. Like God saying, this is what I want you to do. Remember what I wanted you to do. This was the whole intention is to live this kind of devoted life to the, to the king. Um, but in this chapter we have this kind of interesting thing. And I'll say one more thing before I get kick in too much. Um, the framing of this book is this section, I think the chapter divisions are in weird spots. Like they don't really go with the text. So we're going to get an example of that tonight. Um, but we'll have this season of preparation, guiding, and now we're going into a section that I'll, I would call inheritance. So this is what they have coming. And it starts off then the daughters of Zelophad, the son of Heifer. Um, so of all the names out of that, census that we had last week heifer is the one that stood out and in the english i know that means a cow but um the daughter's names too it, it's just hard to not notice that and i wonder sometimes if the lord even planned some of that where exodus was about the salvation of israel and is a typology of salvation and what it looks like when god saves a heart numbers is a typology of god's guidance in our lives and what it looks like to move from newly saved to living in the fruits and the life of Jesus Christ. There is a gap there, and it's a biblical thing that I think a lot of denominations really struggle with. We can say, I want to give my life to the Lord, but it can take us a lifetime to be walking step by step with God. And in fact, the, the more mature believers get, the more they think they're out of step with God. Look at Paul's transition, right? I'm the greatest of all sinners. And that desire to love and walk with God grows the more we get to know God. But the more we get to know God, we, we start to see how far we are away from holiness and how much we need him. Well, the book of Numbers looks like that. So I want to take a little time and just do the whole overview of Numbers. And we have some new people, so this is kind of nice. It's like a big catch-up. Paul, get your pencil ready. I'm going to go fast. Um, the whole point of this book is how we come into God's promises. Because God promises this life with the fruits of the Spirit and all these good things and this joy and this happiness. But we get saved, and what's in our heart is not joy and happiness the day after we get saved. Well, for some, there's this elation, right? But then you get back to regular life, and you're like, this is kind of a grind. And where's all these blessings I was promised? And Israel's been going through that journey in the book of Numbers. And it's been 40 years, I should point out. So we just got done with the second census in chapter 26. There's one at the beginning of the book of Numbers, and there's another at the end of the book of Numbers. So you've got Numbers, Numbers, and that's the bookmarks for the book. Uh, numbers chapter 1. Why, hello. God started by counting the names, and then he names all the people in Israel, or the families. Chapter 2, he organizes the people of Israel. Chapter 3 and 4, he gives his servants work to do, and some of that work that he gives his servants is really menial labor right? It's not just tent making stuff. It's really menial labor. Chapter five, God commands them to clean up their act and get the camp organized. In chapter six, he accepts their vows and he blesses the priests. So all of this is in preparation to get moving. Chapter seven, he, or chapter seven, he records everything. Chapter eight, he claims the Levites as his own servants and people. And chapter nine, he reminds them that they should be worship, worshiping and following God. Okay, at that point in the book of Numbers, it's time to get moving. So all of those things happen right after Israel is saved and brought into this place where they are saved from the enemy, but there's some kind of things that get organized in your life. So people will get saved, and then they live the way they've always lived, and there's some things that if you really want the benefits of salvation, you have to start living differently. You have to do things differently. 
And you have to have these moments where you say, I, I want to stop doing these things and start doing these things. So that's chapters one through nine. God's kind of setting Israel up for that and retraining them. And then comes this back and forth thing that we've been in for a lot of chapters. Watch how this happens. And I love how this works when you take this kind of long view of the book. Chapter 10, they break camp. That's a good thing, right? And then in Numbers chapters 11 through 14, they complain, they dissent, they fear, and they get aggressive. Well, those are bad things. So, and then in chapter 15, God disciples them. He teaches them to meet, to give welcome, to give thanks, to stop sinning for goodness sakes. And then he tells them to wear tassels. Remember this? Those of them who have been here. He's basically saying, I just want you to live these simple, pure lives, right? And then in number 16, the sons of Korah rebel and they have rebellion. That's a bad thing. So there's this back and forth between God teaching them what's good and then them screwing up again and again and again. 17, there's this rod of fruit with Aaron. Numbers 18, there's this covenant of salt. And then numbers 19, there's this perfect red heifer that will be the sacrifice that purifies all of Israel and brings the unclean people into a place of salvation. And it's a metaphor for Christ, right? Right in the middle. Then in Numbers 20, Moses strikes the rock. God says, you didn't believe me. And then in verse, in, in verse 12, and then Aaron dies at the end of that chapter. So those are bad things. Even Moses and Aaron, the leader and the priest, fall short of the glory of God. Not one person in Israel is able to do the things that he's asking them to do after salvation. That should be really encouraged to anybody in this room that's backslidden or sinned after you've given your life to God. Because even this nation of Israel that saw the wonders and miracles and glories of God were not able to do it. Even Moses fails in chapter 20. It's a big point. So on their own strength, none of them can live like they're supposed to live. The whole generation. Numbers 21 through 24, the world starts to gather military and spiritual forces to battle and combat Israel. And it just ends up blessing Israel which is, these are fun chapters, right? And then in Numbers 25, Israel remains close and settles in. They get comfortable. They start dabbling. They take invitations. They start joining, and then they start bowing down to false idols. They get too comfortable. How many people do we know that have given their lives to the Lord, and after a while, they just get too comfortable, and they fall back right into what they were doing with the world? And nothing in their life has changed. Do you see the pattern here? And God keeps coaching them. So you got defiant Zimri at the end of chapter 20, 25, and then you've got this grandkid, Phineas. He's a really important character, and it, and it helps to start this chapter with these daughters of Zelophad and Zelophehad, however we're going to pronounce That's how we're going to pronounce that tonight. So Phineas is the grandkid of the high priest, and he has total zeal for God, and God blesses him for that. He has no tolerance for this brazen defiance of God's way. If you want to be with God's people, live the way God wants you to live. And he's bold about it. And he's really not worried about Zimri's feelings because he puts a javelin through him, right? So all of this, interestingly enough, you've got numbers 1 through 9 that are this kind of intro section. Then you've got numbers 10 through 25 that are this middle section of just Israel continually being taught by God and continually failing all the way through. And then we go into this end section. What's cool about the middle of the book, if we've got these two sections on the side and then this back and forth in the middle, we're looking for chiastic form, aren't we? And for those of you that haven't been around a lot, I love chiastic forms. Ancient writing was written this way because it was rolled in a scroll. So when you rolled the scroll up, you would put half the scroll on each of the bars and in the middle of the scroll is the most important point. So when you start to unroll the book of numbers, what you see right dead center is a big deal. Guess what's dead center of all that stuff? The salvation of the red heifer. There's going to be a perfect sacrifice that's going to be given that will atone for all of Israel, right in the middle of all of it. So you have this kind of pattern that goes on. 17 to 19 kind of set up this covenant that God has. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to give you gifts to deal with it. And I'm going to give you a perfect sacrifice. And he puts all of these things in as kind of a typology of what's happening. Old Testament critics will often look at the negative stuff that I just went through. Look at how God is wrathful and horrible. What they don't read is the whole book, where the point of all of these failings of the Israelites and the punishments of God is that with each one of those failings, they get a double blessing of grace. So yeah, we're going to kill the sons of Korah, but I'm also going to give you a perfect atoning sacrifice that will cover all of your sins for all of eternity. 
right? And so there's these balances where God's teaching them and training them and showing grace and wrath in, in not quite equal measures. The grace is a lot bigger through all of this. It's really amazing. So right in the middle of it, we have the redemption. And I wanted to go through all this before we really got into Zolophad because this is part of what I love about the Bible. It is not a bumper sticker. It is something that you study and you get to know. And we have the privilege that when we study this stuff, we get to know the character of God even better. And if, if you're like me, I want to serve God with everything I've got. I got to get to know the character of God. And I have to know how he operates and how he thinks. So in, in Numbers 26, we have that second census. It's the same as the first. God's done all of this stuff to remold and reshape him. If you think of Israel as a typology for your own heart, think of what Israel's had to go through to change to have a complete transformation. There's only Moses left who wasn't really counted as part of the census because he was doing the counting. So every other human being in Israel at this point has been totally swapped out. God's taken the rebellious people and they're gone. And he's taken these people that are zealous like Phineas, and that's who's replacing those people that used to be bitter and complaining. So if you think of Israel like a human heart, that heart is totally transformed at this point. And they're ready then to start enjoying the promises of God because that's happened. And one more point, just so we're theologically in good shape. Israel didn't do any of this on their own strength. So if you think you can change your own heart with your own will and dedication and New Year's resolutions, you're sadly mistaken. You, according to the Bible, will utterly, utterly fail at doing any of that on your own. God has done all of this work for them. And it's been amazing. So God's been teaching all along. Um, and the lessons learned, I think this is the neat part, and this is why Phineas is so important and why the daughters of Zelophad are so important, is because they're at this hinge point in the book of Numbers. I think the daughters of Zelophad and Phineas are bookending the census. And God's showing us this new generation of zealous grandkids, right? Phineas and that he has this zeal for God and these daughters of Zelophad who have this ultimate faith in God that's totally amazing. So we need to just kind of, and I think that those two kind of are what's being shown here, that Israel has changed. And they don't love the world anymore. In fact, that was part of the thing with, with, with Phineas is that he was so upset that people were being worldly and doing it defiantly that they're not of that world. They want to live in the kingdom of God. Like 1 John 2 says, Steph gave me this one, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the daughters of Midian, uh, that's not of the Father, it's of the world. And the world's passing away and the lust of it, and he who does the will of God abides forever. That's the whole point of the book of Numbers. That's where we want to be. So God's splitting and the ungodly from the godly, and in each of those narratives, he's tearing off another part of Israel that's ungodly. And now what he's got left is this Israel that's ready to go. And this idea of not settling in and being like the world. He wants Israel to be set apart. If the people of God aren't consecrated and set apart, the people who don't read the Bible will never know what God looks like. And that's why Israel is so important in human history. It's this example of godly people living life and doing it together. And then there's this word, and this comes from the psychology background. Sorry for that. Zeitgeist. Every generation, there's a zeitgeist. And, and the dictionary says it's the defining spirit or mood of a peculiar, particular period of history as shown by the ideas and beliefs of the time. Isn't that like the world? There's always changes in fashions and attitudes and beliefs that come through the world. And I thought that was a really appropriate idea because we're living in a country whose zeitgeist is changing. And that's the world. The world is always changing. It's unstable. It doesn't have a foundation. So the spirit of the age moves all the time, but when the world changes, the people of God don't. They stay holy, and holiness is eternally defined. That's the book of Numbers. And they're learning how to do that, and we should be too. So we, this uncompromised people living by an unchanging standard puts zeitgeist against the zeal of God, and it's that easy. And these are really fun debates that I used to have with professors, right? These are delightful debates because they're following after the world and you try to say things like that and you have this kind of weird, like it's a discussion that gets to be really tricky. But it's not tricky in the Bible at all. Live for God, live purity, and enjoy the blessings of God. 
right? And the blessings of God are not a new car, if there's any prosperity gospel people in here. Blessings of God are spiritual. That's what happens in your heart. And the zeal, and I, I should have had this in with Phineas, so I apologize for not putting some of this in last week. But Phineas's zeal is a really, in this light, when you look at the whole book, it's super important. Because if you look at this as a typology for our heart, we should be violently attacking the defiant parts of our heart and getting rid of them and completely having no patience for them, right? Listen to this, Matthew 5:29. You know this verse. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. That's a disgusting thought. For more is, it is more profitable for you that you lose one of your members than your whole body be cast into hell. That's a zeal for God. Have no patience for sin in your life. Just get rid of it. Be done with it. And then you think, but I can't do it. And then there's this kind of thing, this tension that we have where we have to get right with God to do it. Okay, so 1 through 9 of preparation with God, 10 through 25, walking with God, learning how to do that. And then 26 through 36, there is this grace at the other end of this journey that's just amazing. And I hope that was worth our time a little bit. I know that took some time, but I just, that view of numbers and where we're at, then we look at Zelophehad's daughters, Zelophehad's daughters, and this story takes on a real shape, almost like Phineas. Like, this is a really important little piece. There's a reason that the genealogy was given for inheritance, and take note that they haven't even seen the land yet. They're arguing about stuff they haven't even seen. Shouldn't we be that zealous for God? No, 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 I want all the spiritual gifts, but you haven't even seen them yet, but you're desiring what God has for you. And I want this place in heaven. James and John, everybody picks on them because they're arguing about who gets to sit next to Jesus in heaven, right? And he says the least of these will be the greatest. And he's trying to teach them something. But they were desiring something they had never even seen. How beautiful is that? Because you take your eyes off the snakes and put your eyes on Christ and you desire what you don't even have. That's called faith. And that life of faith is one where we look forward through and ask for something. Now we'll start chapter 27. Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And these were the names of his daughters. I'm going to give you the translated names of each daughter. First daughter's name is Disease. Mala. Listen to this progression, though. The second name, Noah, means motion or repentance. The third name, Hogla. Her actual name then would be Hogla Heifer. Isn't that a horrible name? She's in the Heifer family based on the census we just had. It gets worse on the next one. So Hogla's name means partridge or bird or spirit. Right? So we have disease, we have repentance, we have spirit. Then you get Milka Heifer. Her name means counsel, and it could even be you know, this image of Jesus where she's learning how to live with God. And then terza means purity, favorable. That's the book. Of, now you see why I went through the whole book of Numbers? There's a journey going on here that translates that's absolutely incredible. And the imagery of these daughters, you wonder if the daughters' names were intentionally made up by the parent as they journeyed through these 40 years. You know, well, the whole family was diseased when she was born. We were going through that plague, so we just named her disease. <laughs> so we remember it. But man, things were getting better. We were repenting. We were turning because all that stuff with the sons of Korah. Then you get that one born, and then you get the next one going, you know, the Spirit's just leading us. We're following the cloud. We're trying to do what God says. So that comes Hogla. And then the council, God's, whenever we have a question, we just go to Moses. He goes to God. We get answers. We got, we're getting counseled by God and taught. And then Tirza, living that life of purity. And just loving that purity is better than corruption. And I know for those of us that have matured in the faith for a long time, isn't purity better than corruption? That corruption just brings the shame and just brings that, that self-loathing. But purity doesn't. You wake up in the morning and you don't feel shame all the time. It's amazing. So there we have the girls of Zelophehad. But then they're going to be born in Israel. They've been changed. And we can see in their names this journey from complaining to being pure in Christ. So here come these young ladies. By the way, they're granddaughters. So within 40 years, odds are these girls are barely even teenagers, right? So maybe 10 years old to 15 years old or something like that. They'd be extremely young, young ladies. 
And they stood before Moses. I like these young ladies just in that point. They go up to the leader of a nation and they're going to stand before him. These are cool, cool young ladies. Before Eleazar the priest, before the leaders and all the congregation, by the doorway of the tabernacle and meeting, they are not messing around, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord, in the company with Korah, but he died of his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from amongst his family because he had no son? Give us a possession amongst our father's brothers. If I'm like these daughters, I've come a long way, right? Lord, I want my inheritance. And all this stuff that's going on and all the things that are happening around, I want my inheritance. So there's a few laws in the Old Testament that are going to come out of this situation. So God has not given Moses the full revelation yet. He's about to give it. Most people um, would complain that we've seen in numbers so far, would grumble, would go talk to other people. Well, we don't have any brothers, so now we don't get a share. And they start doing that blah, 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 blah thing, right? And these daughters don't do that at all. They go straight to Moses and say, we want our inheritance. Our dad raised us well. Our dad raised us the way we were supposed to be raised. And he deserves honor. And there's people like Korah, that guy was a scumbag. He deserves to have his whole family wiped out from the genealogy, but God has grace, that family's still there. But our dad didn't deserve to be wiped off the genealogy. He deserves to be part of this story. So in the genealogy from last chapter, that family got fleshed out more than any other family, in part because we're supposed to look at these daughters. This is a really key point. So the land itself is the gift from God. And if the daughters are living according to God's truth, they deserve an inheritance too. That's the claim. We all know in the ancient world, daughters didn't have the same positions as sons. So we also have a male-female thing going on here, and the Bible goes right at it. This isn't just a history. This is a real dilemma for these young ladies. Because without us brother and without a father, they stand the chance of being destitute and desperate. And that's not good for young ladies in the ancient world. right? So the genealogy... Verse 1 puts these young ladies as a seventh generation. Again, if you look at numbers, everything is so perfect in the Bible. This generation of zeal and faith is the seventh generation since the Exodus. It's kind of neat. The line gets developed, and we see that there are going to be people that settle right where the nation's at right now. There's going to be two and a half tribes that say, we don't even want to cross the Jordan. We'll take what we get over here. But these daughters are not saying that at all. In fact, they're doing the exact opposite. They don't want to settle. They don't want to settle for second best. They really want the full blessing of God. So the last chapter is going to come back to these daughters in, in Numbers. So you can go all the way to the end of Numbers. It'll come back to these daughters in this story, which says that these daughters kind of bookend the final section of Numbers. They're very important, and we're supposed to see something here. In verse 2, they go to the door. They go right to Moses. They do this the right way. And we've seen so many examples of people being upset and doing it the wrong way. But these ladies do it the right way. Verse 3, he was not in the company. Their dad taught him right. So what they're actually asking for in verse 4 is they're asking for what God already said was the law, which is honor your father and mother. So they're not only living under the law, they're actually demanding something according to God's word. That's kind of cool too. So they're saying they're asking for honor for their parents, which is what is in the Ten Commandments. Their father brothers uh, would be their uncles, right? There's a challenge here that there's a, an assumption of a curse if a family doesn't have sons. So there's some drama here too. And they're challenging that assumption that there's some sort of curse if you don't have sons or you don't have kids. That's nonsense. And God's going to make that very clear here. The Lord in Joshua 17, 14, <laughs> these daughters are going to show up again. And they actually, when they get to the land and they're ready to divvy out the lots, these daughters are like... These daughters are like right in line, ready to go for it. So not only do they ask for it here, they're going to come back and they're going to wait on it when they get into the promised land too. It's pretty neat. So Moses brought their case before the Lord in verse 5. And the maturity of Moses as a young man, we don't see this at all. Uh, we see that he has grown up quite a bit because the Lord spoke to Moses saying, um, he goes right to the Lord with stuff. And this is not the same Moses that we met back in Exodus that killed people in anger. Right? He gets challenged. This isn't a Moses that's going to fight that kind of challenge. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 6, 
The daughters of Zelophead speak what is right. You surely shall give them a possession of inheritance in your father's among their father's brothers, and the cause of the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, So first God deals with the daughters, and you're going to surely bless them. But in the next verses, God's going to say, I want you to talk to all of Israel about this because it's a big enough issue to them. So in verse 8, And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause this inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him and his family, and he shall possess it. And he shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. All of that stuff, if you had a Bible teacher that was a lawyer, would make a lot more sense and probably be more of a blessing. For me, I'm not going to get into the legality of it all, but I'm going to sum it up this way. Not only will these daughters get their inheritance, but daughters will forever get their inheritance in Israel. They have as much a right to the land as anybody else. And whether or not they're male or female doesn't matter. What matters is if their family's in good standing with me. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God doesn't just handle their issue. He handles the issue for all young ladies throughout Israel's history. And he kind of sums it up. Verse 7, I love this. What, he, what God says about these girls is that they speak what is right. Uh, in the Hebrew, that's debar ken. It actually is speak right. In the English, they're adding words in there. So it's more, it's not only what they're saying, ken, the word in the Hebrew, it's the manner of how they're saying it. This is how the people are supposed to address things. So God elevates these young ladies to be the example for the whole nation of how to handle your troubles and your problems. So I love these ladies. They speak rightly. This is the right way to speak and what they're saying is right. And what they're saying is they're just basically taking God's law and, and repeating it back. So God seems pleased with these young ladies. And you'd think he might get angry. He just swallowed up the Korathites for complaining and, and whatnot. And these young ladies, he's giving them a blessing. The difference isn't the, fact, isn't the complaining. The difference is how they complain and the nature of what they complain and what they're complaining about. And if we complain about wanting more of God's blessing, what a great prayer. Lord, I'm reading about all these spiritual gifts in the New Testament. How come I don't have any of them? Lord, give me all of them. I want every one of them in measure. Help me to get that. And that's a complaint the Lord actually wants you to make. He wants you to desire what he has for you so much that you go to God with that and bring it to him. So this is the right way to speak. They're speaking true. It says, surely give. And in the Hebrew, and, and I'm still kind of in verse 7, the surely give there is actually a double positive. In the Hebrew, it's Nathan, Nathan. And a double positive is to give, give. So they sh you shall give, give to these ladies. Tradition, Jewish tradition says that means the daughters of Zelophad got double portions of the land. And we don't see that in the actual scriptures, but Jewish people love to fill in the blanks sometimes. Um, but that wording is interpreted that way in Jewish law even today. That the give, give means a double portion. God doesn't just punish them. He actually rewards them for doing things the right way. So where there's wrath on one side, God has double blessing on the other side. It's a consistent principle that comes here. Those that do things rightly, God will bless. So verses 8 through 11, the daughters are going to be the, the fostering of whole new statutes in the law. And they get added in there. Um, God's gift is going to travel with families having nothing to do with gender. The passage of God's will, as it was in chapter 25, stays the, the same here. And there's this zeal for God that God loves about these young ladies. You see how that kind of bookends the census? You got Phineas on one side saying, no, we're not going to have sin around here. And you got these daughters on the other side saying, I just want God's blessing and, I, and I'm asking for it. Legally, I want it and demanding it. I just think there's that idea of these people, these, these grandkids that have seen their grandparents be idiots and their parents screw it up. And then they say, no, 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 we just want God's blessing. We're just going to do it right. We just want purity and we have zeal for it. And these are, this is an amazing generation that we have in Israel right now. They're really neat. And in Joshua, when he takes over the leadership of this generation, there won't be any rebellion for in a whole generation. There's an entire nation of people that are just going to live in purity. And they're going to be blessed like crazy. They're going to go from a nomadic tribe to an actual country with land. I think of that way. And so, okay, this is a stretch, I know. When we had to miss Bible study when we were in Georgia two weeks ago, 
I got to tell you, it just killed my zeal. So I don't know. We just eat food and study the Bible. But there's something about missing it. Like, I wouldn't miss it for the world. There's no excuse that would get in the way. So we got another trip where we're going to D.C. in November. And we were like, nah, we're not traveling on Sunday. Forget that. So if we got to be late to the conference, we'll be late to the conference. And suddenly you start to think there is nothing in this world that takes precedence over being with the people of God on a regular basis. And I hope you all feel that way about your churches. Like you wouldn't miss it for the world. And there's nothing that gets in the way of that. And that's the kind of zeal these grandkids had. And I just, I don't know, for me, I just think, what else is there in the world that's better than food, fellowship, and reading the Word of God? Not necessarily in that order. (laughs) But in the flesh, sometimes we struggle. God says to assemble back in chapter 15 in Numbers, and that's the promise that he gives when we do those things. So verses 8 through 11, there's a lot of if and then, if and then. It's amazing that God is so gracious and loving and he stands on his promises that no matter what happens, there's an if and then statement. If this goes wrong or that goes wrong or this happens, then I'm still going to be gracious. And I just kind of took that out of that, not that I have a legal mind, but this idea that God's going to make a place for whoever wants the inheritance. And he says that too, I will go and prepare a place for you. So that inheritance in heaven is something that's promised in the New Testament. It says, it shall be... um, There at the end of that section in verse 11, it shall be to the children of Israel. That is a promise. And at this point, this is all preparation because none of them have seen any of these promises yet. Verse 12. Now the Lord said to Moses, go up to Mount Abram. Interpreted in the Hebrew, that means regions beyond. So Moses can see the regions beyond. It must have been like kind of a dividing hill line. And see the land which I've given to the children of Israel. And when you've seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, is gathered. This sounds like a heartless verse, doesn't it? All this journey, Moses, for your whole life, and now, by the way, the first word now means we're starting a new story. We're on to a different topic. You're going to get to see the land, but you don't get to go into it. Moses has never seen it because his journeys have been in Egypt and other places. So his whole life, this promised land has been on faith for Moses. Everything Moses has done has been without seeing the end game. Just like us. None of us have seen heaven that I know of. Mike came close. God's going to bless us by letting us see a glimpse of something. And, and really, this is a huge blessing for Moses. Like, just giving Moses a chance to get a glimpse of it. It must have been how John felt when he got the revelation and started to write that down. Moses is going to look at it. And then notice here that, he, that they don't use the word death. And it's not that death is an unfamiliar word in the Hebrew, right? It's been used 23 times in Genesis, 14 times in Exodus, 9 times in Leviticus, and we've already seen the word death 22 times in the book of Numbers. This is a common word in the Bible. Dying is a real thing, but here it doesn't get used at all. And and we should take note of that. Moses has been sanctified. His sins are forgiven. He is living for the Lord, and he is not going to end in a common way because he's not a common man. And these daughters of Phineas, it goes right next to that story. So there's this one situation, shall be gathered, is not just a nice way to say, well, they went to rest or they closed their eyes for all. For It's not just a friendly funeral home way of saying things. Gathered to your people implies there is no death for Moses. He will not die. And it's the same promise Jesus makes to us. There won't be death for you because you've been following me. Kind of cool. Verse 14 says, For the wilderness of Zin, which means flat, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. I love when there's commentary there and I don't even have to remind people because it's right there. Just so you don't, in case you don't remember, Moses was supposed to just talk to the rock, but he didn't. He struck it in anger. And that was not, Moses, God wanted that to be a typology. He wanted that to model something for the nation. Didn't happen. Moses screwed up. Didn't believe God at that moment. So he's going to die with the rest of that generation. So there's attention given to Moses here. And the law and Moses have been paired together. And we're going to get to the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is, you know, same timeline. He's alive. 
the law comes through Moses. God speaks to Moses. Moses writes the law down. That's the law for the Israelites. That law is still in the Bible all the way to today. It hasn't gone away ever. So Moses is the giver of the law. He's even called the law giver. And he is going to forever be an image of the law. That's important because we're going to start talking about Yeshua or Joshua real soon. The law gets left behind. It doesn't make it into the promised land. And that's kind of an, an interesting image. At this point, the people of Israel are going to have to start walking by faith. The New Testament equates leaving the law behind in Hebrews 3.16. And then there's this fight against the flesh and the enemy. So when people give their life to Christ, the letter of the law is no longer relevant because you're forgiven. What's left is this battle with the flesh. And you're like, man, I can never do it right. And you got this wrestling that Paul writes about, Peter writes about it, John writes about it, they all write about it. The book of Numbers writes about it. Again, that's why I wanted to go through the whole book. This has been a whole book about the, the wrestling with the flesh that these people have done. So the salvation part is leaving the law behind, living in grace, but struggling with this idea of purity for the rest of your life. And that's a good thing to do, and it's healthy, and it's right. So we can enter into God's promises right now in hope and in faith. We can put our cares upon God. We can give thanks in everything. We can rejoice always. We can rest in God as our strong shelter. We can look up from the snakes that bite our ankles, and we can put our faith in him. What a blessing, right? How hard it is to do that. So it says, meet me at... Uh, you forgot to command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. What's important here is that Moses had leadership and responsibility and he blew it. So it's not just that he screwed up, right? He's held to a higher standard because he's in a position of leadership. Never demand or look for leadership in your life. It's just a tip because you're held to a higher standard when you have it. So don't ask for it. If God wants you to be in leadership, he finds crazy ways to put you in leadership. Trust me. But it's not something to be desired because Moses is held to a higher standard. My wife's just laughing. Being misrepresented here. Um, and, 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 I, and, I, and Moses at this point isn't supposed to misrepresent God. The aspect of leadership is he's supposed to model God for other people. They're supposed to see what God looks like when they look at Moses. And when he failed in that, he failed big time. So God says, not you. You don't get to go into the promised land, but I still love you. I'm going to give you a glimpse of the land before you go. What a gracious thing to do. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, and I, again, this is where we fall in love with Moses. If you were told you don't get to go into the Holy Land because you're one mistake, most of us would be like, come on, God, one mistake, really? Look at what Moses said instead. Verse 16, let the Lord, the, let the, Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them. I think Moses is talking about the tabernacle. Um, I think God's thinking about heaven who may lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep, which have no shepherd. So Moses is an old codger. This is completely out of the way for, for him to be doing this stuff. And his heart is for the people of Israel. These are the same people that he asked to be killed rather than have to deal with them. In earlier, these are the same people that he got so frustrated with. He went off to be a shepherd for 40 years. These are the same stubborn donkeys that he didn't want much to do with before. And now all he cares about is that they have somebody to lead them. It's just amazing. Moses himself, there's not a conflict between the law and the spirit because Moses, who represents the law, wishes the spirit to be on people. So it's one thing to make a rule. Parents, you all know this. It's one thing to make a rule for your kids to behave or act a certain way, but it really stinks to have to make the rule. What you want is that your kid just acts with dignity and honor and purity because it's right. And out of their heart, out of their spirit, comes this attitude of just being obedient and kind and nice, and they don't hit their brothers and sisters, and they don't steal stuff from the candy jar, and they just have made a choice to be good. And as a parent, that's what you want. And that's the heart of Moses too. It's not that they live under the law because the law is so demanding and so oppressive. It's that they live under the law because they have a heart for living under the law. They want to do it right. And at that point, it's tough. So as a parent, you don't want to have to sit and make 20 rules and hang them on your wall in your house. You only do that when you're desperate and things aren't going right and you have to bring the law to bear. There has to be judgment. There has to be order first. 
to go out and to go in. Moses asked for somebody to do it right, to be a good example for him. It's interesting if you flash forward, Solomon prays the same thing when he's told he's going to be king. And he says, I just want that wisdom and I want to be able to model this for the people. So Solomon had read the book of Numbers and he's praying just like Moses did because God's like, what do you want? And he's like, I want, show me how to show people to go in and come out. To not be like sheep without a shepherd. So I, I love these moments and we love Fluffy, our imaginary sheep that we all know and care and adore. What does it look like when a sheep has no shepherd? And those of us that have been on farms, not me, not very much, but every sheep I've seen, they are not smart animals. <laughs> and this is not to make fun or, or to be hard on the people of God, but humans compared to God are not smart animals. We are not very bright creatures. We do the stuff that actually hurts us and hurts everyone around us. And in the flesh, we do this pretty consistently. We're not very smart people. Um, sheep don't look where they're going. They fall into pits and can't get out. Like the commercial, they all need to have little detectors where they can call people because they can't get up. They're ill-equipped to defend themselves. You don't have violent sheep out there. So Moses uh, kind of sees all of this. And instead of resenting these dumb sheep, he loves them. Lord, just have somebody take care of them because these people are idiots. And they will go right into the first cliff that they see, and then they'll follow each other off it. They'll go right back to golden calves. They'll go right back to worrying about the snakes. They'll go right back to complaining and arguing, and they will go right back to the daughters of Midian. They'll just do it instantly. And they'll do it without thinking because they're sheep. This isn't necessarily a positive image for Moses. He worked with sheep for 40 years. He knew this. And he worked with the sheep that had the big fatty tails. They can't even run, right? They are just big targets for wolves. They are easy prey. So I want to do a quick thing with shepherds because this is the first time we really see this image being applied. And Moses' prayer for the people of God is that there's a shepherd. That shepherd that he's praying for right now really doesn't show up. It shows up with Joshua. That's the one God's going to pick. But the person who declares that they are, that I am a shepherd, that's Jesus. The next time we see somebody claim to be this person in the Bible is with Jesus. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for his sheep, John 10, 11. And when, when he returns, 1 Peter 4, 5, 4, when the chief shepherd shall appear, yet he shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. So this is exactly what Jesus is teaching too. Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the one that's going to watch after the people. Mark 6, 34, And Jesus, when he came out, saw many people, and he was moved with compassion towards them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And then he began to teach them. What does a good shepherd do? They teach. We have a lot of teachers in this room. You should take great heart in this. When you see people that walk around like sheep and they have no guidance and no order and, and no rule in their life, the thing that should be in our heart is to teach them what that looks like and to raise them up. So to teach is to feed the word of God to God's flock. It's what we do. Jesus commissions everyone that is with him and his disciples. The, the term he uses is to be a shepherd, which in the Greek is the same word, root word for pastor, right? We are supposed to be. This is the Great Commission. Acts 20, 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the entire counsel of God, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers or shepherds to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. What's Paul talking about there? What's this? Uh, is that Paul talking? Wait a sec. I'm sorry, I didn't look that up. This is an Acts. It could be anybody talking. Point being, the point of a shepherd is to feed people the word of God. That's what Moses has done through the entire book of Numbers and Exodus. God says something to Moses. Moses tells us what it is. Moses writes it down. So when we read the word of God, we are being fed in a spiritual way. Moses wonders who will feed the sheep. And Jesus is going to ultimately be that person that shows up to feed the sheep. And feeding means to teach the whole counsel of the word of God. And this is why we're doing this Bible study. Honestly, way back in the day, it was because we just couldn't find a place to talk through the entire Bible. Right? And that's kind of what Steph and I love about our Calvary chapels too, is they just go chapter by chapter all the way through. But that idea of feeding the whole council, all of it, 
Without God's work, the flock starts to wander. It's open to predators, Acts 20, 29. It's vulnerable. It can lose its inheritance, Acts 20, 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. The people in Numbers are looking for an inheritance. The people right now, today, in 2020, we're looking for an inheritance too. We want what God has to offer. Okay, we'll get back to the chapter. Um, so Moses faithfully tells people what God says. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, in the Hebrew that's Yeshua, the son of Nun with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. So as Moses the law steps down, Joshua, Yeshua, steps up from this generation of boldness and zeal. Super cool image. Moses has fathered Joshua, and now Joshua has the spirit, God, Yeshua, man's spirit, all in, in verse 18. You see all of those images hinted at there. Moses is father Joshua, and now Joshua has the spirit. It says, in whom spirit. There's no article actually in the Hebrew there. There's no, for people that don't know words, directly translated, that means man spirit. It's a really interesting turn of phrase. Um, so it says, a man in whom man spirit. So there's no like transitional pieces. Does that mean, am I making sense? Um, take Joshua, the son of Manon with you, man spirit. This guy has a spirit on him. And that's a really interesting phrase because we don't really hear much about the Holy Spirit until later in the New Testament. Yet it fits perfectly here without any contradiction with the New Testament at all, both for the typology and for Joshua. And only Hebrew really does that as a language because in the English we add all these little words to try to make that sentence make more sense to, in the English. But in the Hebrew, it could be interpreted either way with equal accuracy. So there's a man that is spirited. There is a man with the spirit. Joshua has a courage or a wind or a breath in him. That's the same Hebrew word. There's something in this person. He is a man in whom God has breathed life into. Um, and there is a life in him. This is the same word that we saw back in Genesis 1-2 when it said the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Same word. Genesis 7:15, and there went unto Noah and his ark, and two and two of all flesh, wherein was the breath of life. Same word. This is how Joshua gets defined. There is no other leadership quality that Joshua has other than that he has the spirit. Isn't that kind of cool? And it's the same word that we see in Genesis 41:38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the spirit of God is? So Pharaoh's question that was asked way back in Genesis actually gets answered right now. Yep, here's a man in whom there is a spirit. Joshua is getting set up to be quite a hero. The only qualification for the job, he's going to lead, and he's going to lead with that. Um, then we get this idea of laying on the hands. You're going to lay your hand on him. That's another huge Christian idea that kind of gets pulled out here. Authority in the Bible gets transferred from somebody with God's given authority through the laying on of hands. Now, different denominations handle this extremely differently, and we all come from different denominations. But there's a principle here we don't want to lose either. Um, there is a transition that happens, and if someone starts to claim authority in the kingdom, and there hasn't been a clear presumed authority line being passed down, that's really not biblical, and it's dangerous. And it's why denominations have seminaries and why they have official ordination ceremonies and all that. Because when that's not passed down efficiently from a minister of God to another minister of God, we don't see examples of that really in the Bible, other than maybe Abraham, right? Where God had to make a covenant with him directly. But otherwise, we see this passing of leadership, starting with Moses to Joshua. Um, we see that God's people are led by people that have been had that mantle put upon them. We saw it with the priesthood in the form of the robes. The robes get taken off the priest, they get put on the next priest. But with the civic authority or the legal authority, it's simply a laying on of hands. So from Moses to Joshua, we see a slightly different transition. Um, I want to go back for Joshua too, because this idea of who he is, what does it take to be in leadership? And let's look at every example that Joshua has had so far in the Bible. And where have we seen Joshua? So far we've seen him gathering men to fight for God in Exodus 17, 9. So he's organizing campfires. He's an assistant to Moses in Exodus 24, 13. He is a watchman on the wall standing guard duty in Exodus 32, 17. Am I going too fast? 
Okay. He's Moses' servant and assistant in Exodus 33.11. So, so far, he's been with the men to fight. He's been an assistant. He's been a guardman, a watchman, and he's been a servant. What does it take to rise in the kingdom of God? Serve people. Help people. Just come and look for people who have needs and minister to them. That's what it takes. Stop thinking about yourself. Think about other people. Joshua's consistently done that. In Numbers 11, 28, he was called a choice man. So he was seen as standing out as one of these servant kind of people. Like this guy's consistently here. He's, he's the person you pick. If you got to pick somebody, you pick Joshua. Because look at how consistent he is. Then he's a spy in Numbers 13, 16. He is standing up for God in Numbers 14, 38. When he comes back, he's the only, one of, him and Caleb are the only two spies that say, I still trust, yeah, it looks scary, but I still trust God. So he's seen as taking a stand. And then he and Caleb are, have what I would call zeal in Numbers 26, 65. So there's a progression with every instance we've seen Joshua too, moving from the lowest of servants, the people who fight. <laughs> you know, he goes to the rally to people that serve, and then he serves Moses himself and as his assistant. Joshua has spent 40 years of his life helping other people. And God picks him out of the whole nation of Israel to take over leadership. Isn't that really neat? I think sometimes when we serve and we help other people, we think sometimes that that's a lower position. God never sees it that way. He sees you as being absolutely precious in his kingdom. And when you serve and you help other people do the work of God, that's a total blessing. And that's actually how God picks out his leaders at some point. There is no indication of ambition with Joshua at any point prior to this. He hasn't, like Miriam came up and wanted authority, none of that from Joshua. He's always just backed Moses. In whom spirit, there's no biblical condemnation of Joshua at any point. And that's kind of important because if he's a typology of Jesus, that doesn't make a very good typology if Joshua does a bunch of sin, right? So he's this image or this pattern that we're going to see. There's no shame with Joshua because we don't have any record of anything he's ever done wrong. He's always done it right. Likewise, there should be no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And that's Joshua. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sent his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned the sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There's a transition from Moses the law to Joshua the Spirit. There's this life in Christ that's going to happen. So they lay the hand on him. You get this clear physical transition of authority. Um, 2 Timothy 1.6 has Paul directing Timothy to do the same thing. Lay hands on people when you set them off for ministry. And then we get these uh, kind of these images of how that's going to happen. So in verse 19, Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. Clear transition. In verse 19, it's about the whole congregation seeing what's happening, uh, that there's no doubt that this is the person to follow. They're going to put Joshua out in front and show the people this is who you follow. You're going to follow Joshua. We see a similar transition as John the Baptist is who everybody's following. And John the Baptist says, I want you to follow Jesus. And that's the person you're supposed to follow. And the people kind of do. Verse 20. And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. The authority of Moses is that he's given the law. And the law isn't going to go away with the Spirit. And I think this is a huge theological concept that a lot of churches miss the tension between the law and the Spirit. The law doesn't go away here and it doesn't go away with Jesus either. In fact, Jesus actually says, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Joshua's job isn't to destroy the laws of Moses. It's to fulfill it because we're going to do them out of the spirit. So shepherds in this sense are initiated and they're going to be initiated from Moses to Joshua all the way down to Jesus. There's this initiation of those people that shepherd God's people. Jesus doesn't replace the law. He's just going to be the first one that does it because it's in his spirit. And he's going to be the first one to model that we can follow the law. 
all the congregation. The numbers has captured this tension between the obedience to God's word and the defiance of the people of Israel. And they're going to see that Joshua is the new person to lead, that they can be obedient. The issue here is not that they're obedient to Moses or Joshua, but they're obedient to the law and to what God has said that they should do. I think it's an interesting idea that this idea of obedience is really tough as the culture around you changes and the culture around you starts to define what's right and wrong but God's word says something else is right and wrong and you have to start doing what God says instead of what the culture says just a thought she'll stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim so Joshua is going to lead but he's not actually the lawgiver the priests are going to start taking that role over but there is this faithful oversight. Joshua is not top of the nation. He actually is under these priests at his inauguration. Um, the Urim, if you remember, this is the third time we've seen that in the Bible. The high priest has in his little pouch a two, we think they're stones, an Urim and a Thummim. And if he leads by the Urim, it means that's the positive or the one that pulls out when Joshua's leader. If they pull out the Urim, that's the way they should go. Kind of like the cloud. So it's almost like God's preparing them to live according to God's will without a big massive cloud of fire and smoke in front of them, which is going to be important because that's going to go away when they go into the Holy Land, but they will still have the Urim and the Thum. So God's reducing his physical presence and increasing his spiritual leadership when he does that. God's going to step in here and decide whose ultimate authority will be there, and he's going to validate Joshua through the use of that. In that sense, God still holds the judgment of the nation. And this is key because, again, in this typology image, Jesus also will stand in, in before the throne of judgment for us. We don't get to go up before God and say how righteous we are. Jesus does that for us because he will be an advocate for us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you might not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So God, Jesus stands in there in the same way they're going to go before the priest and God's going to still talk to the nation through the Urim and the Thummim. At this word they shall go out and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So God finally answers Moses' question. It took him a while to get there from back in verse 17. God answers the prayer and picks the perfect guy that has no record of wrong. And it's not clear, not important when Moses inaugurates him because Moses is going to still be around for like three months. So we're going to have him here for a few more chapters. And there's a lot going on in Deuteronomy too, where Moses still has stuff to do and write down. But God's basically saying, don't worry, Moses. I got the perfect guy to take over when you're gone. So he's going to live out his final months knowing that the legacy is going to go forward. There's this immediate sense to this verse. At his word, they shall go out. At his word, they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. It doesn't really have a timestamp on that verse. So God's talking about Joshua, but he's equally giving a prophetic sense of Jesus. And he's using the same word, just in case some of us are dim. We don't have to, it's Yeshua. We don't have to guess what he's talking about there. John, uh, 1 John 2, 3 through 7. If you want to write that in your margins next to this one. Now, by this, we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, the law, he who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this we know that we are in him. He who says that he abides in him ought to himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. We're not going to really get anything new for the rest of the Bible. We've already heard it. God's told and defined what his purity is and what his plan is. He's just going to continue to show it to us in new ways. Verse 22, so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua, he set him before Eleazar the priest, before all the congregation, and he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Uh, God, Moses is doing what the Lord tells him to do, and that's just the end of Moses' life. God says it, he does it, it's easy. Note at this point that they're settled by the Jordan. But they're fulfilling this process to show everybody who the shepherd is before they move the flock into the promised land. Uh, world history-wise, showing who Jesus is helps the entire congregation of God follow Jesus through the next 2,000 years of human history. 
Moses is going to rest his hand on him as this happens. God then speaks, and then God's going to step in and speak with the Urim too. So there's a really clear pattern. I'm going to say that one more time before I read this passage from Matthew. They settle right next to the Jordan River. This is an important location in the New Testament too. They're fulfilling God's process, and they're going to show everybody who the shepherd is. Joshua, who is the spirit, is going to be settling there, and the spirit is going to rest or alight. The law is going to put his hand on the spirit, and it's going to rest on him just as God speaks, and then he's going to, God's going to step in and do something. So listen to this passage with that pattern of behavior. It's so cool how the Bible does this. Matthew 3, verse 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John by the Jordan River to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I don't need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. we got to do this in this pattern. And then he allowed him. So when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove or a spirit and alighting on him or setting on top of him. The God comes and sets on the shepherd and suddenly a voice comes down from heaven. No human gets to announce who the shepherd is. God does the announcing. Isn't this cool? And then a voice comes out and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Amazing. So what they're doing with Joshua right now gets completely mirrored in the New Testament. And you see this pairing of what's going on. They settle by the Jordan. God allows this process to happen. And John even argues with it and every, about who's going to be the shepherd and who the shepherd is. Jesus already has the spirit. Joshua already has the spirit. God already said that. This is a man spirit. But Jesus would be a God spirit. So there's a little difference here. And John's going to baptize God. John is a prophet. He represents the law. He's telling everybody to repent. And it rests or alights like a dove on him. The baptism of God is fulfilled then with God's word, not with the actions of John the Baptist. It's not Moses that fulfills this. It's the pulling of the Urim showing that God's with this transition. God actually steps in with Jesus, however, and actually speaks where everybody can hear him talking. It's not just a stone coming out of the pouch. So with Jesus, this is actually fulfilled better than it was with Joshua because with Jesus, it's the real thing couple last thoughts. The spiritual authority here then is going from Jesus from John as a line of priests, but the way it's done is in the order of kings. So Joshua is not a king. They don't have kings in Israel yet, but he's the civic authority for Israel. So the way Jesus' baptism gets done in particular, because God steps in, is done according to priests and it's done according to kings. Kind of cool. Or at least this original transition of civic authority because I think they come up with other traditions for David and Solomon and those folks. Moses and John don't do anything. They're just obedient. They just do what God tells them to do. There is no greater prophet than John the Baptist. He does what he was told to do. And that puts John the Baptist above Moses, by the way, too. So John the Baptist is the one that does that transfer. Uh, There's a passing on or a legacy that's going to be there. Moses isn't going to take anything with him. We don't either. God's going to tell Moses what to do, and he's actually going to do it before he dies. So God's wrapping things up. There's an inheritance that's going to happen. God's going to redeem and forgive and give this perfect sacrifice in the middle of the book of Numbers. So Moses is going to step down, gives the new instructions. Yeshua now sits on the throne or is in this position of shepherding Israel, not a king but a shepherd. This is amazing. And people think, well, why do we need to study the Old Testament? It's like, if you don't study this, you don't see the beauty of God and the power and the absolute authority God has over human events. Absolutely how we understand the fullness of what God's doing and that he can perfectly do this over thousands of years and make this stuff just match and work with different authors, different people. He just throws humans in and out and and uses them as he sees fit. All glory to God in all of this. So Israel... It's gone through this period where they've wrestled with sin. They got this generation of zeal that's committed their life to the Lord. They've dealt with all the sin, gotten it ripped out of their nation, pulled out of their cart, and now Jesus is on the throne. (laughs) And it's this image where they're going to go forward with God running their life. And we should be the same way. You can see why I wanted to do this whole look at the book of Numbers tonight, right? 
we should be the same way as God pulls that junk out of our heart and purifies it and we can start to live for Christ, then truly Christ comes in on the throne of our hearts and he runs our lives. And in that, there's no condemnation and there's no failing in that. There's no shame in that. You just move forward with Christ on the throne. It's amazing stuff. What is life going to look like when Christ is on the throne? And what is, how amazing will this be? Well, actually, it's pretty boring. The next two chapters do not have fireworks and sound crackers. It is this faithful, devoted life, which a person of God says, I just want peace. I love the fact that there's no drama. I praise the Lord for the fact that the people I know are getting saved. I love the fact that there's peace in my heart. There's joy in my spirit. And that's what we see in the next two chapters is God's going to do a review of the book of Leviticus. That's why I want to do them both in the same night next week. He's going to just say, here's what devotion looks like. And he's going to remind them once again, morning and evening prayers, a weekly Sabbath, a monthly feast and annual festivals. And just live that life like I've asked you to live it. And I will bless you incredibly. So there's nothing dazzling. It's not like a Hollywood movie. Right? They find this place of purity and they just have peace and joy and love and hope and faith. And those are going to be how they move forward. But I'm giving away too much for next week. They're not going to be held back by conflict, by fear, by complaining, by rebellion, by enemies, by sin, by zeitgeist. None of that's going to get to them anymore. They're just going to be living for the kingdom. Right? And that's how it's going to operate. And, and I should say, nor the Midianite temptations. Like those things are now behind them. They're going to start moving forward. They're moving into the Holy Land. But before they make their motion, next chapter, they're going to get reminded of what devotion looks like and what God asked in the first place. So it's like we're ending numbers where we started numbers. Like here's the book of Leviticus, and then we have this journey, and okay, now we're back to the book of Leviticus. So I will not get into all of it. I will just reference the chapter next week. So if you want to go back and listen to those podcasts, you can, because the feasts are incredible, but we're not going to go through and define each of the feasts and the sacrifices. We're just going to get through the two chapters. Amen. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your blessings. Lord, help us to, for this to sink into our heart, that when Christ is in our heart, Lord, we are called to be set apart and sacred for you and consecrated. Lord, help us to have the zeal of Phineas to just... Uh, attack anything in our heart, Lord, that stands against you and get rid of it and get things out of our life that are taking our heart away from you. Lord, help us to have the faith and the hope of Zelophad's daughters that we can ask for things we have not seen yet. And Lord, help us to have a hope in heaven that drives us forward with a zeal to where we will come to your throne and ask for the inheritance you've promised us. Lord, you have promised us that you'll be our shelter, you'll be our peace, Lord, you've promised uh, uh, that you will help to bear our burdens. Lord, you've promised that we can cast all our cares upon you. You've promised that we can, that we can live with no fear of the world and what it'll do to us. Lord, you, we've, you've promised us all of these things, and we ask you for those things, Lord, because it's your will that we want those things. Lord, you've promised us gifts of the Spirit, Lord. You've promised that we will see and do things, Lord, that that show you and reveal you to other people. So Lord, may your glory be revealed through our lives and our lifestyle. Uh, may people see us and see what a holy life looks like, Lord, and help us to do it because we can't do it on our own. So change our hearts and mold us so that as we wake up in a few years or even a day, Lord, we know that you've done something new in our heart and you've made us new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.